You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of Yahweh and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, Yahweh appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And Yahweh said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules. Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has Yahweh done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned Yahweh their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, Yahweh has brought all this disaster on them. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, and, oh, by the way, Merry Christmas Eve, because today is Sunday, December 24th, 2023. This is episode 783 of this podcast. As I said, as I've said many times now, I'm coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, where it looks a bit cloudy outside this morning. It looks like it's in the forecast for us to get some snow for Christmas Eve and for Christmas Day which is very exciting to me. I'm very glad for it. Before we talk about the passage in question, which is 1 Kings chapter 9, a short, brief passage, I'll say, it being Christmas Eve, I considered not recording this podcast. And I also considered not recording a podcast episode tomorrow, but I think I will. I think I will record one. Well, I am right now, today, but I think I will record one tomorrow as well because there are some thoughts that are occurring By virtue of it being Christmas Eve and tomorrow being Christmas Day, and I think that those would be worth sharing. And 
good to share, good to process, and to work through. And so we will. We will process the material and not take the day off of thinking. We shouldn't take the day off pondering and contemplating, particularly as we're remembering the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary. 2,000-some years ago, the birth of this Messiah, this King of the Jews, was not for no reason and not random and not by chance and not out of context. It was entirely in context, and we are still inhabiting context that is affected by the birth of Jesus. And we are looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And oh, by the way, the second coming will have, as part of its context, what's happening right now, what's happening on Christmas Eve in the year of our Lord, 2023, what's happening on Christmas Day in the year of our Lord, 2023. The context is, in part, the birth of Jesus for what's happening today. And that is also to say that the second coming includes as its context, in part, what we're doing when we celebrate or when we remember, whether we remember well and celebrate well, or we need grace. (laughs) If we need grace in the way that we remember to help us to understand rightly and to think rightly about the second coming of Christ and the first coming of Christ, then that's all right, because that was the whole point of the first coming of Christ. And that will be the point, actually, not just grace, but also grace in the second coming. It'll be a mercy to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who rejoice in the truth, those who call on the name of the Lord and they are saved, will have their redemption, their salvation, riding through the clouds and being announced with trumpets as Jesus comes to judge the quick and the dead. But for now, for now, let's talk about 1 Kings chapter 9, because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. It's not a long chapter here, especially not compared to the previous chapter. And one does have to wonder sometimes why they didn't you know, space it out a little bit. Why the lack of uniformity? Why the heterogeneity? The size of First Kings chapter 8, talking about the prayers and benedictions and thanksgiving and consecration of the temple Solomon built, and now the Lord appearing to Solomon after all of the construction is complete. Why the mismatch? Well, we'll keep this brief because the chapter is brief. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of Yahweh and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, Yahweh appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. If you'll remember, when he appeared to Solomon at Gibeon, that's when God asked Solomon, son of David, what shall I give you? And that's when Solomon asked for wisdom to govern this God's great people, to do it well, to do it wisely, to do it according to understanding and insight, to make good judgments, to execute justice in a discerning way. And God was pleased by that answer. God said, I will give you not just what you have asked for, I will give you also what you did not ask for, that you could have asked for, that most men 
perhaps do ask for whether or not God grants that request. Most men, when in a position of authority, like coming into a kingdom and becoming a king, most men do ask for honor. They care very much about being respected. First and foremost, they will demand respect. But did they earn the respect? That's another question. They'll want wealth. They'll want riches. They'll want the economy to be doing well and for everybody to be happy, especially they themselves and their closest advisors and supporters. If everybody else can't do well, at least the people close to the king, the people who are friends of the king and family of the king and loyal adherence to his rule, they need to be doing well economically. And yet, when you seek first riches or honor, very often you find that the result is dishonor and poverty. This thing that you want so badly because you're seeking it out of order and you don't really understand what it takes to get it properly, you lose everything. You don't get the honor. In fact, you do very dishonorable things, demanding respect, and you lose more respect than you would have gained if you would have just focused on doing what's right. If you would have just focused on executing justice and loving mercy, whenever you can give mercy and it's appropriate and it's good and it's helpful to give mercy, make sure that it's clear that it is mercy. It is a mercy. You deserve justice. You deserve a penalty here, but I'm going to be lenient. I forgive you. You've asked for forgiveness. I'm going to give you forgiveness. Don't do that anymore, please. That's how you get honor. And that's actually also how you promote economic growth. But then God specially blesses Solomon. And that is a large part of what enables Solomon to build not just the temple, but this big house of his. The big, beautiful buildings that Solomon built were possible because there was the wealth to draw on. There was peace that allowed for focusing on the building. The peace also fed into economic activity. The economic activity also supported the peace. And all of this made possible because God had blessed Solomon with wisdom. But now the building is done. Solomon has built everything that he desired to build. And so this is actually the point at which, speaking personally, this is my opinion, a lot of men get into trouble. They've built everything that they had in mind to build. And now what? Now what are they going to do? Well, of course, they're going to start by surveying their works. But if they get bored, this is where they will also get into trouble, quite probably. This is where the midlife crisis hits. This is where they start making some very sharp left or right turns. And they start acting out of character with what you came to expect when they were their most active, when they were in a good rhythm of productivity. Solomon now having God appear to him a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon seems to me to coincide with that point in Solomon's life, but also the point in Solomon's rule and reign over Israel when he is most vulnerable to pivot. And so this is also grace. You can say, ah, oh, man, this is such a buzzkill. Why does God show up and start talking to Solomon as though this is a threat? as though Solomon is on the verge of forgetting himself and forgetting God, that's such a buzzkill. Why the negativity, God? If this were not God, if this were a man, that's the kind of a thing we would say. And it would be very foolish because actually this is an ounce of prevention being worth a pound of cure. If God is granting to Solomon 
a little bit of a heads up that God is in the know as to Solomon's vulnerability here. Verse 3, Yahweh said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now, that's not negative. That's a very happy thing. But it's all conditioned. And that's where the unhappiness can creep in. That's where the nagging doubts start to rise to the surface. What's this if word? What's this condition you're talking about? If? Don't you mean when, God? No. No. (laughs) We should be sad to say, no, not when, because it's not a given. It's not to be assumed. If, and there's also an if the other direction, because that's what it means for things to be conditional. In logic, when I'm doing PLC programming, if I put an if condition in the logic, I'm examining a statement or a bit. And I'm saying, if this condition is met, then this will be the reaction of a valve or a run permissive or a shutdown or an alert. If this bit is a one, for instance, as in we have voltage coming back from the device, then such and such, but then you have to have an or else. You have to have, if it's not, then you won't energize this piece of equipment. You won't have this valve open. You'll have it closed. You won't have a good state. If this condition is met, then good. If this condition is not met, then bad. (laughs) You want the condition to be met, so try to keep it within the lines here. Color within the lines, drive it between the lines, down the highway. If you go off the road, it's going to be bumpy, and you can't be guaranteed any safety for you, your passengers, or your vehicle. You can't guarantee that you're going to actually make it to your destination. If you go off the road versus staying within the lines, staying on the road, But then verse 6, if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. So in other words, this big temple this big, beautiful temple that spent so much money and so much time of your people that you, more to the point, spent so much of your people's time and money on to build for my name. I will have my name be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. But if you go worshiping other gods, you or your sons, your children, if you go worshiping other gods, and serving them instead of obeying me, then I will sweep away this temple. And oh, by the way, I will cut off Israel from the land. So not only will you lose the prestige of this temple, but also you will lose your whole country. This house, verse 8, will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it 
will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has Yahweh done thus to the land and to this house? Then, because it will be a rhetorical question, they will say, Because they abandoned Yahweh their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, Yahweh has brought all this disaster on them. So you can either be an example of righteousness and faithfulness and wisdom and obedience and blessed, and all nations will see that and know the character of God by how you are blessed, or you can become a byword. You can be a cautionary tale. You can become something that people who pass by will marvel at for how ruined your country is. And there again, people will know the name of Yahweh. They will come to fear and to know Yahweh, that he does not show partiality even to his people, maybe especially to his people, when they have completely abandoned him and rebelled against him and forgotten him. In this episode, we're going to talk a bit about faith in our institutions. We're going to talk more about what it means that we would have faith in our institutions. And we're going to clip along at a brisk pace because it is Christmas Eve and it is Sunday. And we're going to go, me and my family, to the Christmas Eve service across town at Summit View. And so I only have so much time, but we're going to talk about how this being in the biblical text should inform the kind of faith we have in our institutions, what that means, whether it's proper for us to have faith in our institutions the way that a lot of people are saying we should, and the way a lot of people are acting as though we must. For now, we leave 1 Kings chapter 9 behind, but we're sobered, and we should be, by what it reveals about the character of God and the nature of man. We'll touch on it here and there as we go and at the end. But for now, let's move into some current events and consider our own ways and our own time and place and our own people. First up, Silicon Valley ditches news, shaking an unstable industry. This piece published October 28th in the Denver Post is actually from the New York Times News Service Syndicate. So you may think at first blush, if you read too fast, that this is the Denver Post, our local metropolitan area newspaper, but actually it's the New York Times, essentially. Seizing on the fact that you are reading the Denver Post, perhaps, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but the Greeley Tribune in our city, the city that my family and I live in, does the same sort of a thing. They'll just republish pieces from all over the country because it's the same news. They have the same positions, and to save time, they just say, yeah, we'll just publish yours. We'll publish your piece. That's fine. Here we have the featured image of the Facebook logo, and I find it interesting just to read the caption on the featured image. That's all we'll do for this piece, and you can read the rest of it if you'd like, but just to read the featured image is why I draw your attention to this, for starters. It reads, in this March 29th, 2018 file photo, the logo for Facebook appears on screens at the NASDAQ market site in New York Times Square. Facebook prematurely turned off safeguards designed to thwart misinformation and rabble-rousing after Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in the 2020 elections in a money-making move that a company, Whistleblower, alleges contributed to the deadly January 6, 2021 invasion of the U.S. Capitol. 
Now, we'll just pause right there. The headline is Silicon Valley ditches news, shaking an unstable industry. But then what's admitted is that they have, quote unquote, safeguards. They have safeguards in place that they prematurely turned off, which is to say that they were on through the election cycle leading up to 2020's election. Those safeguards were in place to prevent so-called misinformation and rabble-rousing. The safeguards were prematurely turned off after the election was over. Why? Because apparently they'd served their purpose and it was thought, you can solve for X here, that we dodged a bullet there, which is to say that the safeguards were there to prevent people from believing, more and more people from believing that in fact there were reasons to doubt the legitimacy of the 2020 election results. The safeguards were in place to thwart, quote unquote, misinformation and rabble rousing after Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump, which is to say also this is a big contention among those who voted for Donald Trump and those who have serious misgivings about the 2020 election results and what went on in 2020 more generally, that safeguards were there not just to prevent misinformation and rabble rousing, as in you're spreading fake news, but really, even if you're spreading true accounts that might stir people up, that was being taken down, that was being delisted, or that was being suppressed in various ways, shadow banning, making sure that certain things, certain stories wouldn't be visible to your entire audience, certain types of people in your audience or the general public, making sure that there were little fact check, so-called independent third-party fact checker writers, making sure that the position in the feed was sufficiently far down so as to not make this or that type of information front of mind. By the time people would encounter it, they'd already scrolled back through a whole lot of other things that were, whether or not chronologically or even relevantly more pressing, they would lull the viewer, the reader into a greater sense of stability. This is fine. Everything is fine. Don't worry about it. Or here, we'll let you see it, but we're going to pile on in such a way as to discredit this thing before you've even looked at it because we've decided this would just be too upsetting. It would just get people stirred up. That Silicon Valley is ditching news really should be read differently. I mean, that might be the way that they're going to spin it. Hey, it's too risky. It's too risky for what? It's too risky for maintaining the status quo. It's too risky relative people sharing information online that might get them upset. What kind of information might get them upset? Only false information, lies, slander, libel, propaganda for enemies, foreign and domestic, or also true information that would bring a major sea change in our politics, in our culture. Is that also the kind of information that you have decided, you know what, since we can't really control this effectively anymore, we're just going to throw it all out. We're just going to block everything because we might accidentally have some news on there that is going to inform people or people are going to come to the wrong conclusions about and we can't control that anymore. It's too difficult. It's too complicated. 
It's too risky to try and control that. Even the trusted traditional media sources that we rely on to frame things and present them in the so-called proper context, we can't risk that news being highlighted either because then unless we turn off the comments, people are going to comment and they're going to react in a way that also stirs people up, that will also become fodder for those we don't like and their push to change our political situation or our cultural conversation. That this would be connected by the New York Times News Service Syndicate and the Denver Post would highlight it and reshare it on their newspaper's website is to say that these two things are related. They're saying that these things are related. Silicon Valley, that is big tech, that is major social media corporations, ditching news really is to say that they're trying to suppress the news on their platforms because they can't control the narrative like they once were able to, or it's too risky to try and control the narrative. They've lost control, and so they're just going to try and tamp down on the sharing of news and the talking about the news on their platform. You can't ban everybody, and at a certain point, you start to destroy your customer base because people get frustrated at being suspended, having their content taken down, being given a warning that there's a strike against their account, having their account suspended, sure, or removed, or having a friend's account suspended, or a friend's content taken down, or a friend's content obstructed. We've blurred this image or this video because it contains possibly potentially disturbing, sensitive information. Do you want to see why? The answer is always, or near enough always, because we've decided in Silicon Valley or our third-party fact-checkers who are highly partisan in favor of the left have decided that if you see this, it's going to be damaging to our portrayal of offense. What we're saying is going on. What we're telling you, you need to know and care about. It's going to be damaging to the narrative and therefore damaging to the status quo, damaging to our credibility and the credibility of the people we support. At a certain point, the customer base online starts to just get frustrated enough to delete their accounts and revert to maybe older fashioned ways of having relationships, having friendships, keeping in touch with both their family and their friends, and also meeting new people. They start to revert back to older ways of getting together and discussing things and figuring things out that the third-party fact-checkers can't see and can't control, that big tech can't manipulate directly. So even this, Silicon Valley ditching news, shaking an unstable industry, is a directional signal. It's a directional signal for the full spectrum politically. The people on the radical left are basically being assured, hey, we're doing all we can. The people who are moderate left are giving an explanation that basically frames this as a public safety issue. So remember January 6th? You don't want that to happen again, right? That happened because Facebook turned off its safeguards prematurely. So we've got to just shut it down. Maybe someday you guys can be trusted again for us to turn it back on, but 
We can't make any guarantees. This is for your own protection. The people in the center are probably the most worrisome for traditional media and new media in the way of social media. The people in the middle are the ones who can be swayed, typically in any election, one direction or the other, based on how the economy is doing, based on fuzzier perceptions of who is credible, who's likable, who is trustworthy. And if we can't control the narrative, well, we have to explain to you why we're just going to close the gates and lock the gates. If we can't play gatekeeper like we once were able to, we need to justify just closing and locking the gates and keeping everybody out online. People on the right, though, moderate right, first of all, they're predisposed to feel guilty and apologetic for what happened on January 6th and to dismiss the same people who were questioning the 2020 election and the whole year of 2020 for all the same reasons that they were less likely to go in with those people on questioning the official narrative through COVID lockdowns and mandates. They are also going to be given a narrative that they can use when they're talking with their more aggressive conservative fellows, their more aggressive Republican friends and family. Yeah, no, that's just conspiracy theory. You thinking that the news is being curated online, I think that's just conspiracy theory. I wouldn't worry too much about it. Now, somebody's got to, right? And they'll play apologist traditionally. They'll say, oh, no, but they have to do that, right? And our side does that too. It's fine, right? It is a public safety concern after all. Yeah, January 6th was really bad. That was bad for us, and we don't want that to happen either. I mean, do you want to lose future elections because the left is able to point to things like January 6th? Uh, We've got to let them do this. We shouldn't make a fuss about it. We should be more focused on being winsome. You know, if if you wouldn't have been posting that inflammatory stuff that, I don't know, you know, it was a little tenuous. It was a little, little bit hard to believe. And even if it is true, I mean, it wasn't very good public relations for you to be posting that. It got people all stirred up and upset after all. I mean, we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place if you wouldn't have been tweaking them. Let's be honest. The far right, the kinds of people who publicly questioned COVID policy and the narrative surrounding the 2020 election, they see this and they say, aha, aha, okay, all right, I see how it is. But then again, this goes back to the question of what does it mean that we would have faith in our institutions? Should we have faith in our institutions? If by our institutions, we mean the status quo, should we have faith in the status quo as it pertains to individuals and corporations and political parties and the bureaucracy? Is that wise? Some people think, yes, actually, it's too destabilizing. It's too dangerous to question or cross-examine the status quo. It will hurt the economy. It will hurt our re-election chances if we're already in office. It'll hurt our election chances if we're not in office, if the other party's in office. And yeah, I don't like what they do either, but you're, you're really going to damage our brand if you start questioning certain things that are not surface level, totally obvious. It's too risky. And also maybe it's immoral too, right? So it may be impractical, but it also is going to be ungodly. You know, what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong to insinuate 
that there's dirty dealing going on over there, that this is actually corruption? What if it's not corruption? What if they're just mistaken? Or what if you're misunderstanding? What if it is misinformation? Who knows, right? Maybe we just shouldn't say anything unless we're absolutely sure that we're sure that we're sure. And even then, you don't necessarily have to say anything about it, right? You could just keep that to yourself, right? That's the sort of a conversation we're having and that has been being had in our country for the last several years. And that conversation is not going away anytime soon. The implications of that conversation are playing out every day and they will probably get more and more volatile as we go into next year. Into 2024, we're going to see more instability because we don't have a solid basis for trusting one another and really respecting one another. We've built up quite a lot of unresolved conflict and the trouble with thwarting so-called misinformation and rabble-rousing is anybody who tries to resolve all this confusion and this strife by giving a true accounting of what's happened, how we've gotten to now that might, you know, lead to accountability for bad actors, for instance, for example, it might shed light on actual corruption. The people who are doing bad things and saying untrue things from bad motives because they are bad people. You know, the trouble with thwarting misinformation and rabble rousing so-called is anybody who's going to try and unpack this and figure it out and bring resolution will be easily sidelined by the bad actors themselves as soon as they start getting close to the point, which is that you guys have been acting very badly and you've brought us to this point of no trust. Low trust, possibly, but no trust in many cases in these institutions as you're calling them. I wouldn't say that they are the institutions. I would say you people are distinct from the institutions but then that is to say, if we want to have faith in these institutions as I would see them, you know, the institution of journalism or academia or private business, the private sector, or our government, both elected and unelected, staff and bureaucracies sure have their place. But if we want to have faith in our government, being able to operate well and wisely and with justice and liberty for all, the only way to restore faith that we should have in those institutions is to bring accountability, to bring visibility to what has actually happened and to talk it out and to reason it out and to deal with those who have behaved very badly. But it's hard to do that if only one side is ever allowed to have the talking stick and they hit the other side over the head with the talking stick Anytime the conversation would turn to, well, wait a second, I, I think this was not so honest. I think this was not so good that you did this. And all they can say is, that was for your protection. And so it was good. That was for national security purposes. And so it was good. That was to keep us from being embarrassed on an international stage. And so it was good. You know, that was to save the planet from climate change. And so it was good. Hey, fill in the blank. There's an endless litany of excuses that can be given for a rather mercenary and utilitarian application of ethics with regards to what is shared online, what is discussed in society. And even just the featured image here on this post at the Denver Post tells quite a lot about where we find ourselves 
relative these problems, these concerns. For our next point to consider, though, Joel Abbott, November 9th, not to be, NBC, DeSantis' statement that he evacuated 700 people from Israel is half true because he only signed an executive order and didn't organize or pilot the flights. (laughs) This is just one little example of the way that the traditional media, the corporate news media, spins things. And this is, in and of itself, a kind of misinformation which makes hypocritical the calls to censor conservatives, especially your rank-and-file common citizen who is a conservative online. When NBC News will fact-check Ron DeSantis saying, I sent planes over to Israel and I brought back over 700 people to safety, when they'll fact-check and say, well, you didn't really, literally. No, I mean, that's, that's half true. They're implying that he's a liar and they only do this because he's a Republican. They only do this because they don't like him. They don't like his politics. They don't like what he stands for. And they're trying to chip away at his credibility. Why isn't this sort of post ever held up as an example of undermining faith in our institutions? Why, when we're talking about faith in our institutions and what is or isn't a threat to democracy or rabble-rousing, why isn't this sort of a post held up as an example And a cautionary tale. See, this is the kind of thing we need to get off of the internet. Why is it always your one uncle who is especially vocal? Why is it always, you know, that guy you went to high school with who posts so-called conspiracy theories? It's always those people. And for the last going on three years, January 6th is the gift that keeps on giving as the worst possible scenario, the worst case scenario of what can happen if we let your uncle and your high school classmate keep on posting freely, speaking freely online, sharing whatever they want to share, saying whatever they want to say. But what about NBC News? What about this kind of a fact check, which is itself dishonest, manipulative, (laughs) half true? It being so hypocritical reveals that this is actually about maintaining the status quo for Democrats, making sure that Democrats get their way and that the progressive vision of the good life is what wins out. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, ad infinitum until it achieves absolute and total victory, which is to say, until we have progressive totalitarianism, if we don't already. And you can say, when I go there, Garrett, I think that's not helpful. I think this is proof that it's just a problem on all sides. And I say, no. No, when the one side does it through the corporate media, the traditional media, NBC News, ABC News, CBS News, CNN, MSNBC, etc., when they do it, it's not more legitimate and less ugly and less dirty. But then if someone accidentally falls into an emotional trap where they're being uncareful with their words, but they're just some person who had five minutes on their lunch break to hammer out a quick post, a quick share of something that they came across that was really interesting and very surprising and really thought-provoking, and they have an opinion about it, and they want other people to know about that. If they have five minutes real quick to put this out there, shouldn't the fact-checking, shouldn't the double-checking of the math be happening 
in the comment section from their friends and their family. And oh, by the way, if it doesn't go without saying, maybe they're being so much tipped to the left in the corporate media and social media coverage of and curation of how informed we are about things and what information we're allowed to have access to and how it's framed, maybe that has directly contributed to the sense of urgency and the uncarefulness, more to the point, the overexcited and hyperbolic, hyperventilating even, kinds of content that come from your uncle, hypothetically, or your high school classmate, for instance. The corporate media and social media will say, we're just trying to react to these common people who are rabble-rousing or who are spreading what we call, what we determine is misinformation. We're just reacting to them. But what if it's the other way around? These people feel like we can't trust the corporate media and social media and the politicians and the bureaucrats to be honest here or to give a true accounting. And so we have to, with whatever little time we've got, jump in there and do it or nobody's going to do it. And the results will be disastrous for all the reasons that you need to have trust in institutions. This is actually to try and regain trust because we want reform, because this is corrupt. It is a chicken and egg, cart and horse type problem. But let's move on. Let's move on to our next story here from Malwarebytes. Malwarebytes.com. U.S. government is snooping on people via phone push notifications, says Senator December 7th. Peter Arntz reports. Many people don't realize that the instant alert push notifications you get on your phone are routed through Google or Apple servers, depending on which device you use. So if you have an iPhone or an iPad, any push notifications can be seen by Apple. And if you use an Android, they can be seen by Google. But it seems it's not just Apple and Google who can view them. In a letter to Attorney General Merrick B. Garland, Senator Ron Wyden urged the Department of Justice to, quote, permit Apple and Google to inform their customers and the general public about demands for smartphone app notification records, end quote. Now, we'll just stop right there. You can read the full article in your own time, but for the sake of time, because it is Christmas Eve and we do have church to get to here shortly, I bring this to your attention because this is a U.S. senator. If a U.S. senator is not included in who you believe you should be able to trust, according to this notion that we need to maintain faith in our institutions, then I wonder who you believe you should be able to trust. You should be able to trust unelected bureaucrats more. You should be able to trust social media executives, third-party fact-checkers, traditional media sources of reporting more. If a senator, a U.S. senator, asking, sending a letter to the attorney general, asking for this to be made public knowledge, is not credible that there is some there there, then isn't that interesting that there's a partiality? If it were a Democrat senator, and if this were the DOJ letting you know, would that somehow make it more ethical, more moral for you to put some stock in this being a concern? If this were NBC News, like in our previous story, our previous example, if it were NBC News reporting this to you, would it somehow make it godlier more upright, more righteous, more wise for you to put some stock in it. If it were President Biden, 
would it somehow be okay and socially acceptable for you to say, oh yeah, I'm concerned about that too. That's not right. Or as I suspect for a lot of the more centrist, certainly everybody on the left, but also the centrists and the moderate conservatives, the moderate Republicans, have we the honesty to admit that we've been conditioned to not see as credible Republicans in Congress, in the U.S. Senate, if they're even a sitting president, if they're the governor of a state? Have we been conditioned to suppose that those people too are conspiracy theorists if they start pointing to dirty dealings and corrupt practices and invasions of privacy and maybe even violations of your First Amendment rights? They're conspiracy theorists if they say this is happening and it needs to stop or we need to be informed there needs to be a public accounting of this so that there can be accountability for this. Have we begin? Have we been conditioned? I mean, really, I think the answer is yes. It's a rhetorical question on my part. But for our next segment, let's consider a post from November 30th over at Not To Be. Cardinal Pritchard, not his real name, I trust, posting about Elon Musk at a recent engagement hosted by the New York Times in which Elon Musk is interviewed and asked in front of the conference, in front of the convention goers about some of his choices so far with regards to Twitter, the direction he's taking the company and the reaction from advertisers, from some big name, high profile advertisers saying, we're not going to advertise on your platform because this kind of content is being allowed on the platform, allegedly, supposedly. This is going to be an extended clip. I warn you on the front end, there is language. There's language here. And if you've got kids around, you may want to just pause right now and cover their ears. I'm not going to bleep out the language. Not to say that we should use this kind of language, but then this is the comment. This is the comment from Elon Musk. And I think it's worth presenting in its entirety, just as it's played in the embedded video at not to be. So here it is. Without further ado, cut one, just under five minutes, take a listen, and then I'll have some thoughts for you. And you're clarifying this now, um, but there's a public perception that that was part of a apology tour, if you will, that were, this had been said online. There was all of the criticism. There was advertisers leaving. We talked to Bob Iger I hope today. they stop. You hope? Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go fuck yourself. But go fuck yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, well let me ask you then. That's how I feel. Don't about, advertise. How do you think then about the economics of, of X? If, 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 if part of the underlying model, at least today, and maybe it needs to shift, maybe the answer is it needs to shift away from advertising. Um, if, if you believe that this is the one part of your business where you will be beholden to those who 
have this view, what do you do? F Y. I, I understand that, but there's a reality too, <laughs> right? Yes. No. No. It, it, I mean, Linda no, Yaccarino's right here, and she's got to sell advertising. Absolutely. So, um, no. No. Totally. So. So. No. No. Actually, what what this advertising boycott is uh, is is going to do? It's it's going to kill the company. And do you think that the company? But, and the whole world will know that those advertisers killed the company, and we will document it in great detail. But there are those advertisers. I imagine are going to say. They're going to say, we didn't kill the company. Oh, yeah? They're going to say. Tell it to, tell it to Earth. But they're going, to say that, they're going to say, Elon, that you killed the company because you said these things and that they were inappropriate things and that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform, right? That's, that's what and, and they're let, going to say. And let's see how Earth responds to that. So, okay, this, then this goes back to. We'll, the, we'll both make our cases. Right. And we'll see what the outcome is. What are the economics of that for you? I mean, you, you have enormous resources, so you can actually keep this company going for a very long time. Would you keep it going for a long time if there was no advertising? I mean, if the company fails because of an advertised boycott, it will fail because of an advertised boycott. And that will be what bankrupted the company, and that's what everybody on Earth will know. But what do you think, then, of the... Again, this goes back to the to idea exist. of trust, though. Then and it'll I, be gone. And it'll be gone because of an advertised boycott. But, but you recognize that some of those people are going to say that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform. And I, I, wonder, I just wonder and ask you and think about that for a Tell second. Tell it to the judge. But the, but the judge is going to be... The uh, judge is the public. And you think that the public is going to say that, that Disney is making a mistake? Yes. And they're going to boycott Disney? They already are. Well, there, there are some that are for, for, for lots of different reasons, but you think that this is going to, that you have the, this goes to actually the interesting of, of, of power and leverage. Let the chips fall where they may. Let the chips fall where they may. Can I ask what, why that is the approach? And I, I ask it because you've been What's very- What's the other approach? Well, you've been very particular about, the, I mean, the approach to Tesla, uh, when you think about the engineering involved in that, the approach to SpaceX, the approach to, um, some of the stuff you're doing with, with AI has been very specific, right? There's not a let, let the chips fall where they may approach to those businesses, I don't think. No, we focus on making the best products. And, and, and Tesla's gotten to where it's gotten with no advertising at all. I understand that. Tesla currently sells two, twice as much uh, in terms of electric vehicles as the rest of electric car makers in, in the United States combined. Tesla has done more to help the environment than uh, all other companies combined. It would be fair to say that, therefore, as a leader of the company, I've done more for the environment than everyone else, any single human on Earth. How do you feel about that? No, I, no, how do I feel about that? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm asking you personally how you feel about that, because this goes, we're talking about power and influence and-, I'm, and saying, I'm saying what I, what I care about is the, the reality of goodness, not the perception of it. And what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. Fuck them. Okay? Okay, and there we go. We'll stop right there because that's the end of the clip. But there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of conflict on the stage at this summit. There's a lot of stark, blunt and you might say, 
harsh, but I would say very direct rhetoric. On the one hand, you have this almost show trial of sorts with the kinds of questions that are being asked. Let's put you on the spot. And what are you doing, right? Let's try and put this on you, Elon Musk. Let's make this about you. Let's create the perception or let's reinforce the perception that this is all just Elon Musk going off the reservation, maybe losing his mind, maybe not being responsible with the shareholders' money. Let's try and conflate what is being threatened and what is being done with regards to X, formerly known as Twitter, with the management of SpaceX and with regards to Tesla. And let's say that shareholders need to abandon ship because you're allowing content allegedly, and this goes back to a report from Media Matters, alleging that all manner of awful, immoral, evil content was being allowed on X. And it's all Elon Musk's fault because he's not censoring like the previous management, the previous owners of the company were censoring. Never mind the Twitter files being released to independent journalists like Michael Schellenberger, like Matt Taibbi. Never mind the Twitter files showing that you have ongoing years and years long collusion between the staff of Democrat lawmakers, or even the staff of Joe Biden as they were running for president, or radical leftists, or unelected bureaucrats, either in intelligence agencies or in other agencies, contacting Twitter, asking for certain accounts to be flagged, or shadow banned, or suspended, or even permanently banned because of their political content. Honestly, because of their political content, because they were sharing material that was damaging to the perception of the public regarding what the Democrats were doing and what they wanted to do and what they perhaps were involved in behind the scenes. Never mind about that. Let's start the timeline with Media Matters reporting. Let's start the timeline after the boycott has been threatened based on faulty reporting, speaking of misinformation. And let's put the onus on Elon Musk. Of course, this is your responsibility, Elon Musk, to respond and to cave to the pressure. You're in the business to make money. This has to work, right? That's how this works. It's irresponsible for you to not care first and foremost about making money. And Elon Musk's response, if I can clean it up a little bit and distill it to its essence, is you're trying to blackmail me. You're trying to control Twitter by proxy with your advertising dollars, with our advertising revenue. And you think because this has the potential to destroy the company, I'm going to blink. But no, let the chips fall where they may. This will destroy the company and the whole world. All of Earth will see that you just destroyed the company because you weren't able to not advertise the way that you wanted to advertise, but you weren't able to control the narrative. You're accustomed to getting your way and controlling the narrative through your advertising revenues, not just controlling the message itself, but controlling everybody else, apparently, everybody else's message on the platform. Is that how this has been working, apparently? Ooh, do you realize what you've just revealed, Disney? You're demanding that the censorship regime regain control of X, regain control of Twitter, 
And Elon Musk says, no, this is absolutely going to bankrupt the company. It's going to destroy the company and let the people of Earth, let humanity decide based on the evidence who it is that destroyed the company. Did Elon Musk destroy the company or did the likes of Bob Iger and the Walt Disney Company destroy Twitter? Because they weren't able to control what other people were allowed to say on there and what they weren't allowed to say on there. It's a fascinating exchange and not the first of its kind with regards to Elon Musk. But the very last thing that's said by Elon Musk is you have these people, you have a lot of these people everywhere you look, the people who are controlling the narrative, are obsessed with looking good even while they do what is evil. He says, and I quote, what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. That is an appearance of righteousness, an appearance of godliness after a fashion based on the new paradigm, based on DEI, based on ESG, based on wokeness, based on progressivism, a appearance of godliness, but denying the power of godliness and silencing anybody who would present the counter narrative and say, actually, that's not good and godly. And that's not righteous. That's not just. You call it social justice, but it's not justice. You call it wokeness, but it's fascinating how fragile this narrative must be that for being woke, you won't (laughs) permit other people to question whether this is a dream or not still. If you've ever been dreaming and in your dream, you think you wake up from the dream but then you realize I'm still dreaming and this is just a different layer of the dream. That's how it is for the people who think they're woke, but it's really critical theory. It's really Marxism at root. It's cultural Marxism. It's critical theory in various forms, especially using race and gender and sexuality and the climate, but it's critical theory to break everything down into oppressor versus oppressed. So even if you're doing well materially, the claim will be that's because you're part of an oppressive system that discriminates against minorities. All the while, this dream within a dream insists on oppressing the minority. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, globally, and increasingly as the birth rate is declining decade over decade in the West, in Europe, and in the United States, for instance, but it's been this way for quite some time, increasingly, these white Westerners who at least have some nominal Christianity that's common to their culture, who are heterosexual, who are, generally speaking, participating in this free market economy. Not that we have free market capitalism like we used to, because quite a lot of socialism has been injected into it and mixed with it, again, year over year, decade over decade. But these people who are being labeled the oppressors of the earth and the cause of all the problems in the world the cause of all of the economic inequality, all of the suffering, all of the et cetera. They're the minority. And yet what's being claimed is what is theirs in property, in power, in representation, in even the capacity to speak freely should be taken away. It should be taken away. It should be de-amplified. It should be redistributed. And yet it's so interesting The people who are saying this is supposedly for the sake of the oppressed are being very oppressive, even as they are demanding that their advertising revenues, for instance, in this case, be regarded as sufficient leverage. And where it goes from this, I guarantee you, is not just 
the attempted destruction of X or Twitter, as it was formerly known. It's also a veiled threat against Tesla and SpaceX. Now, if you're mismanaging Twitter because you are a crazy person and irrational because you wouldn't take the deal, you wouldn't take this blackmail seriously enough and do what we wanted you to do and bend the knee. If that's true of Elon Musk with regards to X, it's also going to be true of Elon Musk with regards to Tesla and SpaceX. And maybe it's sufficient to just destroy Elon Musk because he's not playing ball, because he's not playing by the rules as they're accustomed to people playing by the rules. This is the game. This is how media and big corporations and the left in politics, whether elected or unelected bureaucrats, this is how they work together to control the market. Oh, yes, it's a private corporation. Yeah, but it's so interesting how the private corporation behind the scenes in the email chains and in the instant messaging, the private company was getting its marching orders about who to silence, whose free speech to infringe on. They were getting that from the government. Isn't that interesting? They were getting it from one particular political party in the government for very partisan objectives to be met or to not be threatened, at least. But again, this goes back to what do we mean when we're talking about faith in our institutions? Should Elon Musk be destroyed? Should X be destroyed? Because what is being said on the platform formerly known as Twitter undermines faith in our institutions. And what do we mean by faith in our institutions? Have we been conditioned to automatically defer to the guy with the suit and the tie who purports to be a journalist, to defer to him if he puts the onus implicitly, if not explicitly, on Elon Musk and Twitter to give Disney what they want? I would say, again, yes. The answer is yes. Now, I'm not saying we should automatically just believe anything that Elon Musk says or anything a Republican senator says or anything a conservative political commentator has to say, no, no, but we're so far from that. And we don't get closer to a healthy view of this by saying, well, everybody is occasionally doing this thing. No, 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 no. It's been constructed to dominate conservatives. And I'm not talking conservative, high-profile people with lots of money and lots of attention. It is constructed to dominate them, either implicitly or explicitly, If the implicit means stop working so well, they have to resort to more explicit, more overt tactics. They get sloppier and then we all get to see. And I think that's the trap that they're falling into, that Elon Musk isn't caving. It's not working. They keep pressing the button, but the bypasses are enabled in Elon Musk's brain, in part because something more fundamental to his sense of accomplishment in life, his happiness in life, something more fundamental has been tampered with. And that is, say, for instance, his relationship with a child of his who went and got a Marxist education and came back and came out of it hating his father, hating everything that he stood for. Why? Because he is the oppressor, according to the critical theory narrative. He's the cause of all the problems in the world because he's got all this money and he's got these corporations and he is increasing the material prosperity of, say, For instance, the United States of America, the West, increasing our capacity to live carbon neutral 
it would seem like that's a good thing to the environmentalists and to the critical theorists. But if they really just hate human beings, actually, because this is from Satan, because Marxism is satanic, if they really just hate human beings, then the cleaner the energy, the more upset they're actually going to be, surprisingly, the really diehard ones. And that is to say, too, the freer the speech, if their arguments don't hold up to scrutiny, ironically, for being critical theory, if they don't hold up to criticism, the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. They are deathly afraid of being cross-examined because their theories are predicated on lies and slander and malice. The closer you get to actually accomplishing the goal where they moved the goalposts to of being carbon neutral, the more upset they're going to be. Because why? Because then you pair it with what Elon Musk has been saying as well about how we're headed for a crisis demographically. Everybody's stopped having children and we can't support civilization. Human civilization is going to collapse because people aren't having enough children. Everybody's afraid of overpopulation. No, no, no. We're headed for a cliff as far as the next generation and the next being able to support an increasingly large, older population that aren't able to work, that must retire. All of this actually exposes that this isn't about being good. Carbon neutrality isn't about being good. It's about looking good while doing evil. It's about fraud on a global scale. It's about legal plunder because your solutions refuse to trust that the free market will perceive and place sufficient value on your electric vehicles, for instance, or your renewable energy that charges the batteries in the electric vehicles, for instance, you're insisting on taxes and penalties and fines and regulations and mandates and subsidies to force the market to adopt these things. Somebody accomplishing by means of the free market and actually allowing people to persuade or not by way of free speech in the marketplace of ideas, a free marketplace of ideas, just like we want a free market with regards to goods and services. We want the free market with regards to discourse, where the first to state his case may seem correct, but we're going to have somebody come and cross-examine him to see whether he is actually correct or whether we could be more correct. All of this is fascinating, and you should take note. Because just like when Trump was president, when he was running for president the first time, when he was actually president, and then for the last few years since he was out of office and now he's running again in 2024, it's not about Trump per se, specifically, when you see the coordinated response to a disruptor like Trump. It's not about Elon Musk, per se, when you see the coordinated response to somebody who's being a disruptor like Elon Musk. What you should realize and recognize is this is something like an immune system responding to a foreign body, or what is perceived to be a foreign body, foreign particulate, foreign genetic information. This is the body and its internal defenses trying to reject what is regarded as alien and even dangerous. Let's have all of the white blood cells attack. And the concerning thing is that the white blood cells in this case are people who purport to be objective journalists, disinterested reporters of just the facts. They're not. The corporate news media, the traditional news media, is not. Social media purports and has purported for years since its outset. This is why people got on 
social media in the first place and stayed on. But social media purported to be this platform for you to create content and create connections. And actually, when they get to play gatekeeper, whether in traditional media or in the new media, social media, they're the ones really creating connections. And it's all the more persuasive this technology is when you think that it's you. So it's like Inception at a global level. Inception where we're going to plant ideas in your head and you'll think that they're your ideas. You have to think that they're your ideas or else your mind will start to criticize those ideas. And that's all the more likely if you have somebody else who's allowed to cross-examine. Nobody who's actually questioning the important particulars of the narrative can be allowed to speak. Or if allowed to speak, they can't be allowed the organic forming of connections where people just share and comment and talk back and forth in the comment section or in private messages or in real life. You can't just allow that willy-nilly because who knows what conclusions people might come to. Well, yeah, they might come to the conclusion that they don't want to take their family to Disney World anymore, ever again. They don't want to take their kids to go see Disney films ever again. They don't want to buy old classic Disney films because now they're questioning, well, how long has Disney been like this? I don't even know. I don't even know when it started. They don't want to subscribe to Disney Plus, even if there are titles on there that were added to the Disney library through acquisition that they really enjoy, they really like. They don't want to risk their kids being conditioned and indoctrinated and catechized after a fashion in this way. Should we have faith in our institutions if by our institutions we mean the New York Times or CNBC or Facebook or various government bureaucracies or various political parties or various individual political figures who say, vote for me, reelect me, give me another two years, give me another four years, give me another however long. If the answer is unequivocally yes, then we are not healthy in mind and we are not healthy in our hearts and we're not healthy in our souls. And I would say that is being conformed to the pattern of this world. Be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. We ought to want to know what is the perfect and pleasing and good will of God for us in Christ Jesus. And we get that by studying and reasoning together and being open to reason. And all of that business of the studying and the reasoning and being reasonable and discussing it together, the evangelism piece, the fellowship piece, the discipleship piece, you need to understand all of that is very threatening to the current status quo. And this is not a new thing. This has been the case. We shouldn't be surprised to find that this is the case. This has always been the case, even when there is religious language and a desire to appear virtuous, trying to appear virtuous, all the while maintaining a free hand behind the scenes to do however many unethical things you need to do in order to get power, expand your power, retain power. That's nothing new under the sun. For somebody to be saying, hey, it's happening. It's happening right here in these places, in these properties that you were trusting too much. You were not savvy participants with. If that's disturbing, if it's upsetting, that doesn't mean that it's not true. Following up on the same 
bit of reporting regarding X and Media Matters and this advertiser boycott. Here's the employee memo, ex-CEO Linda Yaccarino sent in response to the Media Matters report. Joel Abbott posted this November 20th to not to be. And I quote, team, across every corner of this company, we're working to create a platform for everyone. And there is no other platform that's working as hard to protect free speech like X. Our work is critical, but it's not always easy. What we're doing matters, which means it naturally invites criticism from those who do not share our beliefs. While some advertisers may have temporarily paused investments because of a misleading and manipulated article, the data will tell the real story. Because for all of us who work at X, we've been extremely clear about our efforts to combat anti-Semitism and discrimination, as there's no place for it anywhere in the world. I want to encourage you to read and listen to all the feedback. On one side, there's a vocal minority trying to use deceptive attacks to undermine our work, but on the other side, there are vocal supporters and courageous partners who believe in X and the meaningful work you all are doing. Hold on to that and keep pushing forward. No critic will ever deter us from our mission to protect free speech. Let's keep putting our values to work and lean on one another. I'm extremely proud to be on the front line with you all, and I'll see you all at the office tomorrow morning. Linda. Meanwhile, Joel Abbott reports, if you're wondering about what Elon Musk thinks about all of this, here's an embedded tweet wherein he replies to Glenn Greenwald, Media Matters is pure evil. What was Glenn Greenwald's original tweet that was being responded to? Here's what he had to say. I think sometimes people forget that Media Matters was created, shaped, and governed for a long time by David Brock, arguably the single most craven, deceitful, and amoral scumbag DC politics has ever seen. There was no way for anything decent to be spawned from that rotted root. If you don't know who David Brock is, look him up. Media Matters, not a impartial third-party fact-checking, just interested in the truth organization. But again, this goes to our main topic. This brings us to our main topic of faith in our institutions. And an article that was sent to me, not just me, but the rest of the steering committee for the Welfare of the City Project here in Greeley, Colorado, by Isaiah Arakaios. An article that was sent to him by his father-in-law, shared with us, and I want to share it with you. We'll read through that article next, and I have some thoughts. The title of this piece is America's Greatest Threat Lies Within Our Borders. The author is an IFA contributing writer. IFA is Intercessors for America. That is to say, they're a prayer group. They pray to intercede on behalf of America to Almighty God. Remco Brummett published this piece. He is the IFA contributing writer in question. November 7th, 2023. The headline prayer is, Father, raise up people for election who will restore this nation's trust in the government. We'll read the article, and then I have some thoughts. From the top. When you read this, America's greatest threat lies within our borders, 
headline, what comes to mind? Illegal immigrants, fentanyl, terrorist operatives, rampant homelessness, fentanyl and opioids, gun violence, the economy. All these are indeed significant threats to our way of life, and they are happening all at the same time, giving us the sense that we are essentially fighting a non-military war on multiple fronts, but these are not our greatest threats. According to Fox News and an opinion piece by Jonathan Turley, America's greatest threat is hiding in plain sight. He's referring to our rapidly eroding trust in established and respected institutions such as government, religion, and banking. That was brought to light by several polls conducted in recent months. The Associated Press NORC Center for Public Research found that about half of adults say they have hardly any confidence at all in the people who serve in Congress. The Federal Times reports, quote, the lack of faith extends beyond Congress with recent polling conducted both before and after the leadership meltdown, finding a mistrust in everything from the courts to organized religion, end quote. The Federal Times article further says that 53% of adults have little confidence in the leadership of Congress. 49% have hardly any confidence in the executive branch. 36% have little confidence in the judicial branch. 45% have little or no confidence that the news media report the news fully and accurately. Why is this a threat? The eroding trust in government is causing a groundswell of voices in academia and the media to dump the Constitution and bypass institutions like Congress and the Supreme Court. For instance, in a recent open letter, Harvard Law professor Mark Tushnet and San Francisco State University political scientist Aaron Belkin called upon President Joe Biden to defy rulings of the Supreme Court that he considers mistaken in the name of what they call popular constitutionalism. That trend is a dangerous move away from absolute legal standards and toward subjective situations and agenda-driven interpretations. Politicians, too, are contributing to this erosion of public faith in government. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat from New York, has openly questioned the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. These increasingly aggressive attacks on our government institutions and the U.S. Constitution are troubling. After all, the Constitution is a contract between the government and the people put into place to guarantee the people's rights and freedoms and to protect against government overreach and corruption. And the three branches of government were put in place to provide a system of checks and balances in governmental authority. We should not be surprised that the U.S. government and the Constitution are under attack. After all, they are institutions put in place by God. Quote, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. End quote. Romans 13, verses 1 to 2. Because government authority is an institution from God, it is a target for demonic activity, which causes power plays, deception, and corruption that erode public trust. The U.S. government in particular has godliness embedded at its foundation. Its three branches reflect the roles that God laid out in Isaiah 33, 22, judge, lawgiver, and king. The Constitution was written as a biblically-based document, as John Adams wrote in a letter to the officers of the 1st Brigade, 3rd Division of the Militia of Massachusetts, quote, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other, end quote. Godly government guided by a Bible-based Constitution is important for the global church. Such government continuously points to the Bible as God's revelation to man, beckoning people to live in a right relationship with God. Of course, there is no substitute for the kingdom of God, which we can enter only through personal repentance leading to soul salvation. But good government is conducive to the spread of the gospel message and helps create an environment for the church to grow, contributing significantly to worldwide fulfillment of the Great Commission. The erosion of trust in a civil authority that is to maintain law and order and preserve rights and justice 
leads to social division and lawlessness. It brings division because we no longer accept any authority above us to unify us, and it brings lawlessness because we stop obeying the laws given and enforced by an authority we have ceased to trust. All of this plays directly into Satan's hand. His plan is to divide, conquer, and destroy us. If he can successfully create chaos in our government, leading to a mistrust of authority, that mistrust will then overflow into other institutions, including the church. According to the polls, this is precisely what is happening, and it is causing a mass exodus from what the emerging generation calls organized religion into loose forms of personal spirituality they call none, meaning no affiliation with any established religion or system of belief. That is enough for Satan, who wants no one to identify with the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. If the erosion of trust in government and the church continues to worsen, that can lead to our nation's collapse as people begin doing what is right in their own eyes, losing their moral compass and opposing each other instead of uniting for the common good. A nation divided will fall. A nation bereft of moral conscience will destroy itself. A nation that turns its back on biblical moorings will embrace demonically inspired forms of religion and turn its back on the God of the Bible, on the salvation he has wrought for us, and on the blessing of being one nation under him who was so involved in its foundation. Losing the favor of God and turning away from his precepts are bigger threats to our future, our security, and the well-being of our nation than any terrorist group or opposing superpower. This lends a sense of urgency to the Bible's call to pray for our government, see 1 Timothy 2, 1-4, in particular for restoration of the integrity of our leadership. Just as the election of unwise or corrupt leaders will lead to disastrous policies that destroy public trust, the reverse is also true. The election of godly men and women will lead to prayer-driven, wise policies that will restore public trust. That is our beginning point for strategic prayer over the erosion of trust in our nation's institutions. Let us pray that God would raise up strong candidates at every level of government, local, county, state, and federal, and for every branch, executive, legislative, and judicial. Hand in hand with that, let us pray that God would raise up a new generation of spirit-filled, prayerful pastors and evangelists who handle his word with love and without compromise. The results of such prayer will be far-reaching. God's answers will restore to America a climate conducive to the growth of the church and to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The benefits of such a moral climate will be law and order, peace and security, in other words, to liberty, justice, and the pursuit of happiness for all. And here is the more extended prayer that Remco Brummett puts at the end of this write-up. Father, thank you for all you deposited in the foundation of our country. Forgive us for turning away from your precepts and embracing instead godless principles of government. We pray for your hand of restraint against those who seek to actively undermine the biblical design of our government and our constitution and against the forces of darkness now at work to destroy us. Raise up godly men and women to run for office in every branch and level of government so that our nation will once again be directed by godly principles and by people who direct the citizenry to live in right relationship with you. Raise up a new generation of church leadership that will proclaim your word with wisdom, truth, and love so that your name will be trusted and worshiped and your church will be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen. Remco Brummett is a pastor, spiritual growth teacher, and prayer leader with over 40 years of experience in Europe, Southeast Asia, Africa, and the U.S. He was born and raised in the Netherlands and pastored his first church in Amsterdam. He moved to the U.S. in 1986. He and his wife, Jennifer, live north of Atlanta. When not writing books, he blogs at www.deeperlifeblog.com and assists his wife as a content developer and prayer coordinator for True Identity Ministries. Jennifer and Remco 
are passionate about bringing people into a deeper relationship with Christ. And there you have it. That is this full article sent to me, sent to the rest of the steering committee by Isaiah. Thank you, Isaiah. And thank you to Tom Grove for sharing this with us. Now, before I say anything about the article, let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 9, which we started this episode by reading. Remember what it says. And I'll read this again so that it's fresh in our minds. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of Yahweh and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, Yahweh appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And Yahweh said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me, if you will walk before me, if you will walk before me as David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has Yahweh done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned Yahweh, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, Yahweh has brought all this disaster on them. Now, that read, again, the if, the conditional if, on the one hand, if you will walk before me as your father, David walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father. Coming back to Remco Bromitz, IFA piece. Just like the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, governments are instituted by God. But then, as Samuel Rutherford explains in Lex Rex, God raises up governments and he also brings them low. God raises up people, and he also brings them low. God establishes authorities, and he also disestablishes them if they become corrupt, wicked, evil. God does use all of the circumstances that we're seeing and all of the things that we're concerned about hypothetically happening, major terrorist attacks, World War III, total economic collapse, the collapse of the dollar, mass riots and civil disruption, civil war, all of these kinds of things are used by God to disestablish authorities and disestablish peoples and disestablish nations if they become corrupt, if they do not, like the conditional statements in First Kings chapter 9, if they do not obey God, if they do not honor God. And oh, by the way, you can honor God with your lips. And if your heart is far from him, if that is true, 
maybe all the more God will quickly bring destruction on your people. Rather than less, rather than in the case of a nation that makes no pretense, they don't claim any Christian faith and they act like you would expect them to act when they're pagans. They say, we're pagans, and then they act like pagans. And you say, well, I guess that fits. When a nation claims the promises of God or has an appearance of godliness but denies its power and is lukewarm even in the application of a thin veneer of religiosity according to the biblical text, it's just a checking of a box. It's just a going through the motions alongside all of the other gods worshipped and flattered in our public events. When there's lawlessness even actually from the government itself, the government itself is promoting lawlessness through various means. Yes, I, I will agree with Remco Brummett. America's greatest threat lies within our borders. But then again, God uses all of these things that are being listed. And these may be signs and symptoms that that's exactly what God is doing. It may be that God himself is bringing ruin on America because of the wickedness of our leaders and the wickedness of we the people. In fact, previous generations would have made that connection. And they did make that kind of a connection. When there was a major defeat, a major setback, major economic trouble, major geopolitical trouble, when there was famine or plague, what was called for? A national day of prayer and repentance, fasting, not just feasting to give thanks, but also days of asking God forgiveness, repenting of our individual sins, also repenting of our sins of a national character. That there is not talk of repentance anymore. I mean, just think with me for a moment about 1 Kings chapter 9 compared with this time of the year where we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the Messiah and we celebrate the coming of the Christ child in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, just as it is written, wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger. He, having been inquired about by the Magi, the wise men from the east, who stopped off at Herod's place to ask where was this child who had been born king of the Jews, as though Herod would surely know. What was the response from Herod to be deceptive, to be dishonest, to be manipulative, to make an outward show of virtue, all the while behind the scenes, he really wanted to know where this child was so he could kill the child. In an attempt later to do just that, he ordered all of the baby boys to and under in Bethlehem to be murdered. It was only because God sent an angel to warn Joseph in a dream to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt. It was only for that fact and Joseph's obedience that Jesus was not killed as a baby by Herod, by the one the Roman Senate had declared was king of the Jews. Round about 50 BC, you have in Herod not just a civil authority in the region, but more to the point, you have a civil authority in the region who has been installed by a foreign empire which controls Judea, which controls the whole region through military might. And that did not happen by accident. It did not happen by chance, randomly. It did not happen outside of God's control as though there was some disestablishment 
of God's purpose. No, no, it was actually a fulfillment of the very thing God told Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 9. If you will not obey my commands and my precepts, if you worship other gods, and if you do not devote yourself to me, I will drive your people not just from this temple. I will not just sweep away this temple that you have made for my name. I will also drive this, my people, from this land that I have given to them. I will disestablish this people, and I will disestablish this temple that you've just built. If you go worshiping other gods, if you are not faithful, if you are not obedient. And what happens by the time Jesus is born, by the time of the incarnation of the Christ, the Messiah, what happens is just that. Just like God had established Israel in the land of Canaan, God disestablished them and imposed on them a foreign power, a foreign people to rule over them, and yes, even to oppress them. If America, having been established in the first place, is of God, and it is of God, by God's sovereign purpose, by divine intervention, the men who sought to establish the United States of America were able to do so. If the men who have presided over our government and the people who have been governed in this place together as one people under the Constitution, but also under the constitutionally prescribed legislative, judicial, and executive branches, if all of the above proceeded to this point by the establishment of God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, also too, we may be seeing God disestablishing this people and this government and even giving them over to a reprobate mind because what are they doing? They're trying to disestablish his government over this people and over the hearts of this people. And there's a pedagogical quality to the laws that are passed and how they're interpreted and how they're executed. There's a pedagogical quality to that. There's a teaching that happens. It's not just the Christians who have positions on the character of God, the nature of God, the purposes of God, the commands of God, and that reflects itself in how they relate to government. Whether in government or under government, it's not just the Christians, it's everybody. And yes, that is to say, you can have people who profess Christianity and they rule in a lawless way, in a godless way. And the pedagogical quality of the laws that they pass and that they execute and that they interpret is to teach lawlessness and to teach irreverence and to teach godlessness. And just like men may in such a way make war on the authority of God over this people, over this nation, that the nation would be even in previous generations self-identifying as one nation under God, that it would be said in our founding documents that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that these sorts of things would be very self-consciously, very conspicuously in our, not just founding documents, but in our public places, in our government, places where the business of government is carried out, where the people meet with their government and are spoken to and are related to, and that those places would be turned and the hearts of the people would be turned to worshiping other gods and to despising Yahweh God despising Jesus Christ our Lord, stumbling over him, that God would give such a people 
and their government over to an unreasonable, inherently incapable of reasoning mind, and that it would all break down before our eyes, and everywhere you look, you see signs of decay and an erosion of trust. It should not surprise us. That should be exactly what we expect to see, because what preceded the erosion of trust in our government was the intentional and systematic attempt to erode trust in God as the supreme governor of the affairs of men. You can't maintain confidence in our institutions, in other words, unless you insist upon confidence in the one who does the instituting. Who is it that institutes the authorities, according to Romans 13? It's God. God is the one who institutes. Why do you submit yourself to the governing authorities? Because you're submitted to God, because you love God, because you revere God, because you honor God, because you fear God. You cannot maintain the devotion to these institutions while at the same time having taken away the foundation for seeing them as instituted by God in the first place. And yet that's the folly. That's the inherent unreasonableness of what has been committed to now for years and for decades. More and more, Yes, as Remco Bromet points out, this affects how we relate to our education system and our financial system and how we relate to our government and how our government relates to us. And none of this catches God by surprise. Not a lick of it, not even a tiny little bit. Our expectation should not be either, by the way, that if we just try hard enough, we can save this country. No. Only God can save this country. Now, if we just try hard enough, we can reclaim the former times of abundance and security and peace and prosperity. All those are good things to want, but they can't be had if this people has been given over to a reprobate mind and they are stubbornly committed to their own destruction. And so that may surprise people when I say we should still be engaged. We should still be involved. We should still know what is being done by our government or how we relate to government, we should still be intentional about that. There's no avoiding, there's no escaping having some kind of a relationship with our government, but our goal should be blamelessness. It should be to have a good conscience, for one thing, to have a good testimony as pertains to those outside of the church, walking properly before outsiders. We should aspire to live quiet lives, working with our hands, minding our own affairs, being dependent on no one. And that should inform the way that we relate to government. Absolutely, it should. We should pray for all those who are in positions of high authority, that we may live lives that are marked by peace and dignity and godliness. We should pray for the kind of government that will reward that instead of punishing it, instead of seeing it as a threat to what they believe is due reverence, due respect to them. All those if conditional statements in First Kings chapter 9 fully disclosed, on the front end, told to generation after generation of Israelite governed and government personnel. And yet, what did they do? They still, in due time, gave themselves over to the gods of the nations and chose to follow the nations instead of obeying God. They didn't want to obey God, and they suffered for it. But then, here's the beauty of the nativity, that God himself will raise up good government. That is the promise of Messiah is that his government 
will be good. It will be good government, marked by justice and truth and liberty, true liberty. He's come to set the captive free. Those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We've beheld his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father. This is inherently political. Why do I say that? Because it pertains to the business of making decisions together. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you are not making decisions together, if you pay no attention to his well-being. That's the definition, actually, of your heart having grown cold towards your neighbor, the love in your heart having been quenched, extinguished. That's what it is. And the effects are that even for yourself, even your own enjoyment of things will turn to dust in your mouth. You think you can stock up enough provisions, enough supplies to ride out the apocalypse? No, think again. It'll be longer and harder and deeper. And oh, by the way, if word gets around at all, that there's food to be found at your house. It's just a matter of time. You have to sleep sometime. And others who did not put anything away will come for you. And you think, oh, but I have defenses. Yeah, if your defenses involve gathering other people around you, and there is not a strong devotion to Almighty God and a fear of God, you will be bringing the problem into your own camp, into your own house. And you say, well, that'll be better than it is in the broader society. I don't trust people. But I trust these people. On what basis do you trust them? Things having been good to this point, and you haven't been disappointed yet. And yeah, okay, they're a little bit off in a few ways, but it's okay. They're a good shot. They've got great survival skills. They've got this, they've got that. It will be a mercy when the second coming interrupts how bad things have gotten at the end. But then that is to say, it's the second coming of Christ that we're looking forward to. And that is to say, there was a first coming. And that first coming was in the midst of a government that had been imposed on Judea, on what had formerly been Israel and Judah, these two kingdoms that split and they're separate and distinct and they each in turn are given over to foreign powers, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, in due course of time, the Persians, the rule of Alexander the Great briefly, and then the descendants of one of his most prominent generals. And then in due time, they were traded and swapped because this line of descent from one of Alexander's generals lost to this line of descent of one of Alexander's other generals. And then in due time, okay, sure, yeah, you get a few decades of self-rule again with the Maccabees. Great. You're a distinctly Jewish people again, a distinctly Jewish self-governing people again for a little bit. And then here come the Romans. That's the context for the incarnation is that Herod, this evil man who makes an outward show of virtue to kind of hearken back to a previous time in their history where they were devoted to God, this Herod makes an outward show all the while, secretly behind the scenes, he wants to murder this upstart, whoever he is. Whether there's any truth to it, if word gets around that all, somebody's going to make this into a thing and it jeopardizes absolute total control over this people by him on behalf of Rome. And yet God himself, through 
the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ wins. Uh, To just put it succinctly, God wins. That was true then. It was true before. It's still true. It will always be true. So if you want to have faith in institutions, all I'll leave you with is this. Have faith that what God says about institutions is the fact. Have faith in the one who does the instituting. Know that God raises up and he also brings low. And that there's a conditional quality to who he raises up when and how and when he also brings low. Those who get too big for their britches or they become corrupt if they are dishonoring God publicly in due time, in God's good timing, he will bring them low and he will replace them. Ultimately, at the very, very end, he will replace them with Jesus. And I don't think that will be the end of all government. I think that Jesus will establish good government and it will involve people because originally the blessing from God to Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And to exercise dominion over the earth, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. You have these image bearers who give glory to God by ruling in a godly way, in a righteous way, with wisdom and justice, and no, there won't be sin. And so that's not what justice will mean, but the justice will be an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure type justice. Rather than you go on sinning, that grace might abound all the more, you'll have the perfect sinless nature of Jesus himself, a new body in a new heavens and a new earth, and you will enjoy God and glorify him forever as you do work that is not toilsome and it's not futile and it's not fruitless and you get to enjoy the fruits of your labors. Your work will be blessed and you will do the work with others. And yes, you'll still be finite, but that's okay. That's how God made us to be. He made us to be finite and that's all right, but you will love God and appreciate him all the more for his infinitude when you appreciate that your finitude is by design and that there being lots of these image bearers to love one another with, even as you all love and worship and praise God together, you find that you help each other and that that's productive as well. That kind of work is also blessed. (laughs) It's blessed and it's a harmonious working relationship instead of one marked by strife and envy and jealousy and backbiting and slander and malice and trickery and betrayal and suspicion and distrust, then you will have every reason to have faith in institutions. And until then, you must make the way that you relate to those in positions of authority entirely dependent on the trustworthiness of God and not at all dependent on how trustworthy even the best of men may appear to be for a time. And if they ask you or demand of you that you do something that is contrary to the character of God, the righteousness of God, the commands of God, the promises of God, if they insist on you dishonoring God, dishonoring Christ, in order for you to maintain an honorable disposition and have any faith, even in the institutions generally speaking, as distinct from the people who maybe have positions of authority within those institutions, in order for you to maintain even a little bit of faith in the institutions per se, you have to know when to say no. We must obey God rather than men. I'll leave you with this final thought. 
And then I'm going to go and celebrate everything that we're talking about with my family. Depending on how you look at it, the whole of the story of the nativity can be dismissed as so much conspiracy theory. Oh yeah, it says Herod had all of the baby boys in Bethlehem under two years of age murdered, but there's no evidence. That's disputed. There's context that's missing. I mean, that's just probably partisan politics coming out of Judea. You know, these Judeans, you know, these Jews, they've never liked the Roman occupation. They've never really embraced Herod. They make up all kinds of rumors. You you shouldn't spread a false report. You should have faith in your institutions. That would be the wrong way to read it. But then I'm sure, doubtless, there were people who wanted to spin it that way, just like when Jesus was a full-grown man and he started his public ministry, equal to and in proportion to the reverence that the crowds showed to Jesus because of the mighty works that he did, the healing, the forgiving of sins, the casting out of demons, the teaching as one with authority, in proportion to that, equal to that, was the resentment of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. They felt threatened, and they said all manner of evil against him. And they tried to trip him up, and they tried to spin the whole business as actually being that this guy is demon-possessed himself. That's how he casts out demons. Oh, he's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He eats with tax collectors and prostitutes, after all. Have you heard that? Did you know that? Who does he think he is forgiving sins? Only God can forgive sins. Oh, you hear it? You, you hear him claiming to be God, though he's just a man? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. He must die. That was their response. And that is to say, too, that the kind of faith in Christ which we are called to in the gospel. In the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the epistles of the New Testament, Pauline and otherwise, in the book of Acts, yes, even in the Old Testament prophets, in the books of the law, in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, the kind of faith that we're called to have in Christ is the kind that is willing and ready and must be willing and ready to lose faith in the institutions per se in order to have Christ as the ultimate authority. When Jesus confronted publicly the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, when he rebuked them to their faces in front of the crowds, when he warned the crowds publicly that unless their righteousness exceeded that of the Pharisees, they could in no ways enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus told the people that you should do what they say, attend to what they say, they say true things, but don't do what they do. Don't give like they give when they are supposedly being so charitable. Don't fast like they fast when they're supposedly being so pious and they want you to see how gloomy, how disheveled, how hard they're fasting. Man, they fast so hard. Don't pray like they pray even. When Jesus said all of that, was he undermining faith in their institutions? Man, Jesus, this is all we've got left. I mean, first the Romans subdue our people and then they install this Herod guy. And he's not even really a proper Jew, but he's king of the Jews. What an insult. You're not for the zealots violently overthrowing the Romans, so there's a mark against you. We were expecting that the Messiah would wage a guerrilla warfare against the Romans and make us free and independent again. That's what we've been waiting for. That's what we've been hoping for hundreds of years. I mean, it's not enough that you're not doing that, but also you're undermining faith in our institutions. You're undermining faith in the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, 
to boot. What are you doing? One can almost imagine scenarios in which some would say some variation on what Paul writes in Romans 13 to Jesus as if to say, you're undermining faith in our institutions. You can't do this. When the men of Thessalonica, worthless men, it says, of Thessalonica, whole Christians before the city council, they say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They're stirring up the people. What was that about? It was about the political ramifications of the gospel. It was about an upsetting of the status quo. The traditional narrative was being challenged with exactly like in the Sermon on the Mount type reframing of category after category of conventional wisdom. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. That's what Jesus did. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Your rabbis, your teachers of the law have told you this, but I tell you it's this instead. It's not that, it's this. Do this and not that. And so also his followers. So also his disciples. So also his apostles. That's what it meant that the world was being turned upside down. It was very disruptive, and that's why he was put to death. That's why crowds could be whipped up into a frenzy to shout, crucify him. We want Barabbas instead. We'll take a murderer for early release. Is he guilty? Who cares? Well, that was the beginning of the end of Rome when you said, who cares? And you shrugged. And yet the good news is, the great and glorious news is, like in Isaiah chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this, but that's all the time I've got for this episode. A Merry Christmas. To you and your loved ones, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.